0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 28th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today we saw the first published results of a trial of a widely anticipated class of agents to treat COVID-19, monoclonal antibodies. What's the logic behind this sort of intervention?
1: Steve, I guess you can think of the immune system as having two functions in terms of resistance to pathogens. First, it can prevent the establishment of infection in the first place. And of course, that's the primary goal of most vaccines, to to arm the immune system in advance so that when it encounters a pathogen, it can clear it before illness occurs. But there's a second, maybe even more important function, which is to clear pathogens and resolve an ongoing disease. In COVID-19, like other infections, the host mounts an immune response which goes on to inhibit viral replication and eventually allow symptoms to improve in patients who have symptoms or prevent them from occurring at all in patients who are asymptomatic. So it's important to recognize how important immunity is. In the vast majority of infected individuals, immunity kicks in and people are successfully cured of disease simply through the actions of their own immune system. The concept behind this and the other trials that are similar is essentially to transplant immunity into infected individuals who've not yet mounted their own successful immune response. While infection induces both humoral and cell-mediated immunity, at this point it's really only practical to give antibodies and to some extent reproduce a successful humoral response. It's important to remember that we don't know if one, both, or either of these responses is is protective against infection or can be therapeutic. And so we're doing these trials in part to figure out what kind of protection is important. So this is a concept behind the idea of using convalescent plasma as therapy. You take plasma from people who've recovered, it contains antibodies directed against SARS-CoV-2, and We know that the appearance of these antibodies in many diseases, including COVID-19, roughly correlates with the beginning of resolution of viral replication. The thinking is, if we transfer these antibodies to a host who hasn't yet made their own antibody response, we can short-circuit infection. We know this works in some infections, and so hopes have been high for COVID-19. But there are problems with convalescent plasma. It's not perfect. As a biological product, of course, it has safety issues. We know how to mitigate those, but there takes some effort. It's hard to collect in very large quantities, and plasma varies from person to person. And there are pretty substantial differences in antibody levels, and perhaps in the specificity of those antibodies. So there are several issues which make this not the ideal approach. But monoclonal antibodies get around many of these issues, they can be consistent from batch to batch. And can be safely, if expensively, produced at scale. And you pretty much get any specificity you want. So, several groups are trying to produce monoclonal antibody therapeutics.
2: So, Eric, I think that you've covered a lot of ground. I mean, resistance to infection, I think of, in addition to the adaptive immune response, there also is the basic issue of not being exposed, which gets back to masks and avoiding exposure. And for other types of infection, I would say it's the intact skin, so one doesn't have pathogens climb in through openings. But what these types of experiments or pathways can help us understand through the antibody arm of the adaptive immunity is whether or not IgG or humoral immunity can in and of itself block or ameliorate an infectious process. And that's an important biologic principle to establish, as well as the ability to develop a therapy that may have therapeutic benefit. And it's something that goes back more than a century with rabies immune globulin, hepatitis B immune globulin, varicella immune globulin. So the concept of IgG being a protective part of the immune response to a pathogen goes way back, although any biologic product that is pooled from individuals is more complex than a pharmaceutically made targeted monoclonal antibody that has much higher specificity. And there, palivizumab for RSV has sort of helped establish that principle, at least for that infection.
0: The trial published today was an early phase study. So what did the design look like?
1: The trial today tested the safety and efficacy of a single monoclonal antibody, which goes by many names. The investigational name used in this manuscript is cov 555 although actually the agent now has a name, NIVIMAB, but we won't use any of those names because they're all complicated. Um, Like all the monoclonal antibodies that I've heard about, it's directed against the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and in in vitro experiments it neutralizes the virus and prevents infection of tissue culture cells to understand the protocol that they used it's important to keep in mind the goals of early phase trials these are usually designed to test safety at least in a relatively small number of patients and have some measure of efficacy essentially they're an opportunity for drug developers to figure out if moving to a large scale study an expensive late phase trial is worthwhile and to help them design that subsequent trial For example, in many studies, like the one we're discussing, the arms of the trial are designed to help choose the dose of the drug that will be used in subsequent trials. So safety is pretty straightforward to measure, particularly for monoclonal antibodies, as there are hundreds that have already gone into clinical trials and many that have been approved as drugs. Efficacy is somewhat more problematic, however. It's often true that collecting the information necessary to measure important efficacy endpoints takes too long or too many patients to fit within an early stage trial. So many trials use surrogate endpoints. That's great when we know that those endpoints correlate highly with the ultimate outcome that you'd like to see. But in the case of COVID-19, we don't really have strong predictors of treatment success. So investigators have to choose endpoints that are both attainable and which they hope are meaningful. Which brings us to this study. Here, the trialists recruited patients with mild to moderate disease who had symptoms of COVID-19 and had been recently diagnosed but didn't require hospitalization. The patients received a single infusion of one of three different doses of the antibody or placebo. The primary outcome was a change in viral RNA load within four days of day 11 after the antibody was dosed. There were a few secondary outcomes, including safety, symptom burden, as determined by answers to a questionnaire, and clinical outcomes defined as COVID-related emergency department visits, hospitalization, or death.
2: Eric, you highlight the challenges of how to determine what therapies to develop and move forward. By understanding the pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2 and the biology and structure of the pathogen, the spike protein has been identified, its crystal structure determined, and therefore the potential to target it has been exploited and rapidly moved forward. This, as you point out, can be further validated in the sense that in vitro experiments can show neutralization. Preclinical models can show alterations of viral loads and pathogenesis in animal models. But we're stuck with how does this predict human biology, human illness, and improvement in the pathogenesis in wild type or natural infection. And there the clinical studies become so important to best define disease pathogenesis and surrogate markers to understand how we can improve that and therefore accelerate drug development.
1: You bring up an important point, Lindsay, The monoclonal antibodies don't replicate a normal immune response. In a normal immune response, we see antibodies being produced to several proteins, other viral proteins beyond the spike protein. We have no idea if they're important. There are good reasons to think the spike protein is the major protective antigen. But remember, it's still something of a guess. And the other antibodies found in the plasma of convalescent patients may be making a difference. So the investigators here are placing a bet, a reasonable bet, but it's a bet.
0: I understand that it's difficult to use a clinical endpoint in a COVID-19 trial, but why choose viral RNA?
1: It is tough to pick a clinical endpoint. A small study like this in outpatients, in a disease where patients do very well, really it's very hard to measure a response. In fact, there just aren't enough events in a small group of patients to see a difference. In fact, in this group, there were no deaths, and there are a relatively small number of hospitalizations. So the investigators couldn't have seen a signal if they'd chosen these clinical endpoints. Viral RNA is very convenient because it's easy to measure quantitatively. And remember, we hypothesize that the way that a monoclonal antibody works is to inhibit viral replication, so that a fall in viral load is a reasonable way to see if an agent is doing what it's designed to do. And viral load is difficult to measure, but viral RNA is a reasonable stand-in and a very simple reagent to measure. So I think that's the basis for their decision.
2: What underlies this is that the clinical illness is so variable and in the majority of cases resolves on its own, some quick, some a little more slowly. And Steve, as you pointed out, that makes it very difficult to use a clinical endpoint. But to develop surrogates, we need to understand how they behave. And so natural history studies are required to have higher precision for either clinical endpoints or immunological virologic endpoints to understand what they mean to allow us to use them to accelerate development.
0: So we're on the edge of our seats. What were the results of this trial?
2: Well, the trial enrolled over 100
1: patients in each dosage arm and just over 140 in the placebo arm. The patients were dosed a median of four days after the onset of symptoms. And the primary outcome, well, as I said, RNA loads were very low at day 11 with a mean decrease of 4,300 fold. And that makes it very difficult to detect differences. And in fact, for two of the dosages, there were no significant differences between antibody treatment and placebo groups. The middle dose did appear to be associated with lower RNA shedding. But as defined by the primary outcome, this wasn't really a success.
2: Studies like this, I find the placebo group so informative. And as you pointed out, Eric, over a short amount of time in those who received placebo, the change in the viral load was so dramatic, presumably related to the normal emergence of immunologic control. And I think these types of data are critical for us to develop the parameters that can be followed to determine what does or does not work. It reminds me of the nursing home study we published six months ago from Seattle, where the virus entered the nursing home. A study was done assessing all of the residents with the majority of them infected, many with very high levels of viral load in the oropharynx, and only half of them progressed to illness and a significant proportion never became ill, which speaks, Steve, to the complexity of utilizing virologic parameters alone to determine who becomes ill and who doesn't, which challenges our ability to define illness as a key parameter for success. And these data help inform us about the kinetics of the viral load resolution in people who receive nothing more than routine care, comfort care, and allow their immune system to do its job. Once this is defined, then one can use this to better understand how to study new therapies, because one knows what the kinetics are of the normal response, allowing one to study how to improve those kinetics. Whether or not improving the kinetics of clearance makes a difference on clinical wellness is yet another question. However, the importance is to understand what is the biology so that we can alter the biology in what we think is a favorable way.
0: Nonetheless, I've sat through enough editorial meetings to know that when you fail to meet your primary outcome, you failed.
1: Well, that's true, but it's a little bit more complicated for an early phase trial like this one. Remember, the point of this trial isn't to prove that a treatment works. This isn't a registration trial, the kind of trial that's used to get FDA approval for a drug. It's more to justify and understand what you'd need for a larger trial. So once you choose your primary outcome, you have to live with it. But in this case, the primary outcome may not have been the best. And the investigators didn't know that beforehand. So it's fair to look at the other outcomes to see if there were the kind of data that would help make the decision about further testing. And there were some encouraging signals. For example, the RNA loads decreased somewhat more at day three in those who received antibody. And at late time points, there were fewer hospitalizations in the treated patients and a somewhat better symptom score. The adverse events were largely tolerable, and largely infusion reactions in this relatively small number of patients. So there wasn't some big concern there. So altogether, there were some things in there which might make you decide to proceed with a further trial.
2: As you point out, Eric, we need to think carefully about trials which are designed to demonstrate efficacy, where Steve, it gets to your point about being very careful about following the design a priori, so you don't create a false positive. And then there are very early stage trials, which are trying to understand if a novel therapy has a biologic effect, and to help define what that biologic effect might be that allows you to iterate in a more expeditious fashion, because you have a parameter that's easier to detect early on in a rapid fashion, such as alterations in the viral load, so that one can design better therapies and also accelerate the clinical studies that can position you to do efficacy trials. So this is part of the normal scientific process as we learn what the natural history is of SARS-CoV-2 and what we can do to have a salutary effect on that. And even though we don't know that clearing the viral load out of the nares definitely leads to improved health it's highly likely that that's the case.
0: Why aren't the results here more compelling?
1: We don't know, but one of the big problems with using any antibody-based therapy is that patients make their own antibody responses. And once they have their own antibodies, it's not clear if adding more produces any advantage. It's likely that a fair number of patients in this study, as in some previously reported trials, were caught relatively late after infection and had already mounted their own antibody response. And so there's a good reason to think that many of the patients in here really couldn't have had any advantages with the added antibodies.
2: I mean, these types of data raise additional interesting considerations. As Eric, you've already alluded to, what is the impact of exogenous antibody on the development of endogenous antibody, and what are the implications for the emergence of the native immune response and the durability of it. We've seen much discussion about the durability of the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 and natural infection, and that requires a lot more understanding for us to better know how to improve upon it. But these monoclonals raise some interesting questions like that, and also the issue of the emergence of viral resistance. And might that impact how these antibodies might work in the future? I think that's more of an issue for chronic infections like HIV and developing broadly acting neutralizing antibodies than I think it is for an acute viral infection where one needs to blunt the consequences of it in the short term, allowing the host immune response to emerge. But these are questions that will have to be borne out with systematic
0: study. So given all these questions, all these maybes, how in the end do you interpret the results of this study?
1: Well, I guess it's not so important how we interpret this as whether or not the monoclonal antibodies are worth pursuing as therapeutics. And under ordinary circumstances, the developers would have to weigh that decision carefully, looking at the potential benefits and the potential costs of going on given these results. But these really aren't ordinary circumstances, and it's not that difficult a decision. There's still a great need for effective therapeutics, particularly at early stages in infection. And there's a government that's willing to subsidize these trials. So I think the company that produced this monoclonal antibody is already into late-stage trials. If they do show efficacy, however, it's not really clear what the role will be for these agents. At this point, they're administered IV, so that produces logistical challenges, and they'll almost certainly be quite expensive. And remember that most people with early-stage disease just get better, so the impact might be limited. So ultimately, how these used will really depend on what we learn about their safety and their efficacy.
2: But Eric, I mean, it is kind of cool that highly specific Monoclonal antibodies can be developed that are pathogen specific. And the ability to do that is a tribute to the scientific process and the process to develop therapies against pathogens. However, as you point out, we still need to figure out if these work. But the ability to do this collectively, I think, is a remarkable feat thus far.
1: I agree. Lindsay, not only the ability to do it, but the ability to do it so rapidly. The beauty of monoclonal antibodies is we understand a lot about them. We understand how to make them. We have a general idea of their safety. And so moving from the laboratory into people can be a very fast process. And that's important to remember for any outbreak, particularly the next outbreak that occurs, if there's some evidence that this works it might be really useful to respond rapidly to something that's new.
2: I mean, in part, Eric, this has emerged because of what was developed for Ebola, so that the ability to respond to the next pathogen is something we collectively need to think more about. But the technologies that were developed in part over the last decade, accelerated in the context of Ebola, being even more accelerated now in the context of COVID, does lay the groundwork for at least one platform that may be rapidly responsive next time if we properly position it and think through the different issues.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.